Micah chapter 5. Marshal your troops, O city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. Helen's going to come and bring us our second reading, which is from Matthew chapter 2. Matthew 2, starting at verse 1. The visit of the Magi. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. <coughs> After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. <coughs> and having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Well, just a few weeks ago we experienced the great disappointment of... Um, you're going to wonder what I'm going to say now, aren't you? Losing the bid for the 2018 World Cup. For some it was a greater disappointment than others. As I think the picture might uh, show on the screen in a minute if it comes up. And uh, for both the 2018 and the 2022 World Cups, different countries put forward their credentials as to why they thought their country was the best to host this competition. In the case of the UK, it was the fact that we are a footballing nation. It's in our blood. You know, we're born footballers. Just look at uh, teams like Arsenal and all those uh, English footballers that... Um, in the case of Qatar, it was 
what they could do for their bit for global warming by building air-conditioned stadia to cope with temperatures of 50 degrees. In the case of Russia, probably best left unsaid. The World Cup is the most important event in football every four years. But 2,000 years ago, the most important event in the history of mankind took place. I wonder how God decided where it was to take place. I wonder if he'd held a competition for that. What sort of bids would have been presented? Even in those days, as we saw earlier, there were plenty of rich and opulent cities he could have chosen from. Even in Judah, he could have chosen the city of David in Jerusalem, where the temple was still an impressive building. And yet, he chose Bethlehem. And it wasn't a snap decision that he took um, one morning after Mary became pregnant. He would always have known when and where the birth of Jesus Christ was to take place. And he announced it 700 years before through the prophet Micah. Micah said in the 8th century BC, he said, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrata, there you are small among the clans of Judah. Out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Well, I'll just give you a little background to Micah. He was, uh, like most of the prophets, burdened by Israel's uh, sin and God's judgment that they were going to bring upon themselves through their behaviour. He was writing at the same time that um, Isaiah was alive when Assyria conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and took it into captivity and when the city of Jerusalem was besieged. And he alternates between threats of judgment and promises of hope. And what comes through in the book is uh, that even in the darkest moments there can still be um, hope where God is concerned. And the greatest example of that hope, of course, is in the prophecy of the Messiah, the one who is to be ruler in Israel, one who is to be ruler over all nations, and one who, even as a baby, the wise men recognise as that future ruler. Well, how do these events come together? Having forecast this 700 years before, obviously he had to make sure that these events would conspire that uh, he could be born in Bethlehem. Now, we um, have a little bit of snow and we're told not to travel unless it's absolutely necessary. We may be delayed for a few hours, but um, the wise men who at that time set off for a journey of probably several weeks in search of this king, they've come asking a question. They've come asking the question, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east, they say, and have come to worship him. So this is obviously not just any old king. This is a, you know, a king. They had their king in their own country they, they were following. Uh, it was interesting the way they were portrayed. If you, if you saw the series on television this week on BBC, the nativity, um, the, 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 the whole way in which they travelled all this way to find um, this Messiah. But what was it that made them travel all those hundreds of miles? What was it that made them bow down and worship this child, give him precious gifts? And what is it that makes us come here 2,000 years later and worship this same person? Why is he worth following? Well, first of all, Jesus had been promised and he was expected. The amazing thing about Micah's prophecy is that he was making it at a time when all was doom and gloom in Israel. The nation was being attacked, being defeated, 
little cause for optimism. And at the time of Jesus' birth, things were a little better. They were still under foreign rule. But they still held on to the hope that was in this prophecy. They still expected the Messiah to come from Bethlehem. And part of our, uh, I think sometimes our reading of Old Testament texts, uh, and even in New Testament texts, is that the prophecy contained within them has already been fulfilled and we therefore lack the, the excitement, the expectancy of the people at the time reading that, waiting for this to be fulfilled. But let's look again at Matthew chapter 2 if you've got your Bibles open in front of you. Herod here in verse 2 calls together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law and he asks them where the Christ was to be born. What do they answer? They answer in Bethlehem in Judea. For this is what the prophet has written. And they quote from Micah slightly differently from the original. They say, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. And it's clear that in this passage, um, they're quoting it. It's, it's the passage from Micah. That's that passage that makes them certain that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. If God had already told his people through his prophet many hundreds of years earlier that he would be born here, then uh, he would make sure that that was the case. And so Mary and Joseph were living in Nazareth at the time. Mary becomes pregnant. And so there has to be a census to enable them to go to Bethlehem. And God is in control of all these events that happen to enable this to take place as he, as he prophesied. There are many other promises in the Old Testament about the Messiah. But what we're looking at this morning particularly is this uh, prophecy about Bethlehem. What is the significance of the particular sign that he would come from Bethlehem? Well, I think the key here is in the word small because it's that insignificance of Bethlehem that magnifies the significance of Jesus. Let's look at that um, verse from Micah again. It says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrata, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. His origins are from of old, from ancient times. And he carries on in verse 4 in Mike. He says, I, He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. Of the clans of Israel, Bethlehem was insignificant. And yet God chooses to bring the Messiah, the ruler of all nations, out of this town. Why? Well, probably because in choosing a small, quiet backwater, a, a basic stable, a manger, to very ordinary people, he's focusing our attention on the event and the person, and not all the paraphernalia that goes on around it, because so easy to obscure this most important event. Imagine if Jesus had been born in the inn itself. Imagine how that innkeeper would have felt. He probably put a, would have put up a plaque outside saying, Jesus born here. He was probably actually embarrassed that he hadn't let them into the inn and he couldn't do that. Imagine if Jesus' parents had been two quite important people, two quite proud people. How much it would have gone to their heads. They're two very ordinary, humble people. God doesn't want the attention to be on these human achievements, but on his divine mercy on his grace, his glory. In uh, 1 Corinthians, one of you might just to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 
verse uh, 27 is the only cross-reference we'll have. This is what Paul writes some years after the birth and death of Jesus. He writes in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 27, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. In the same way that God didn't choose the place of Christ's birth on the basis of size or splendour, he doesn't choose people on the basis of status or on the basis of impressiveness. God doesn't pour out the blessings of the Messiah, the blessings of salvation, on the basis of human significance or achievement. When he chooses, he chooses in order to magnify the glory of his own mercy. Which is why the angels say, glory to God in the highest. Not glory to Joseph or Mary or to the shepherds or wise men. Glory to God in the highest. As humans, our response to someone is often determined by how important we think they are. In worldly terms, we treat people differently according to their position or status, the job they're doing, maybe even what they're wearing, the car they're driving, the, the house they're living in. Had Jesus' human parents been royalty, had he been born in a palace, people would have worshipped him not from their hearts because of who he was, but according to their human ideas of who he must be because of those trappings. Which brings us on to our third point, because the problem that the story highlights is that not everybody wants to give glory to God. Some will worship him as king, and others will want to be king themselves. Look at Herod here in this story. Herod was a powerful king. He'd reigned for 36 years, a close ally of of Rome. He's someone who wouldn't stop at anything to hold on to his power. Again, if you saw that TV series... He was portrayed as a pretty ruthless, evil person, wasn't he? And like the guy from Holby City, who was a sidekick, was a bit too nice, I thought, in the the programme. But when the Magi come to Herod asking about the new king, he starts to panic in this passage, doesn't he? Look at verse 3. When Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. Why is he disturbed? Why is he worried? Because he sees the birth of this new king as a threat to his power. He's desperately clinging on to that power. He's smart. He's deceitful. And as the following verses show, he's actually pretty callous. He won't allow anything to threaten his rule. But whatever he tries to do, he cannot prevent God's will being done. What should he have done? Well, exactly the same as the Magi. He should have gone and offered Jesus his gifts, accepted his divine kingship, accepted that he had to submit to Jesus' authority. But he didn't, because he was too interested in his own power. And so he tries to eliminate this threat to his throne by asking those who may know where he could be found. And that's where he asks them in verse 4 where the Christ was to be born. It's interesting here, isn't it, that Herod actually refers to him as the Christ, the Messiah. Herod 
himself had been called King of the Jews by the Romans, but he knew he didn't really deserve that, that title. But now the Magi are saying that there has been born one who is King of the Jews. And Herod immediately makes that connection with this one born, with the Messiah, the Christ. The one the scriptures say would be God's anointed one who would come and save his people. Well, if he is the one, then that doesn't bode too well for Herod. But what about the Magi? Because they're very different, aren't they? They've come in search of this king, not because they had to, not to protect their own position. After all, they live in a country many miles away. He's no threat to them. And yet they wanted to come and find him. They wanted to come and worship him. Look at verse 11. Look at their reaction to Jesus when they found him. On coming to their house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. They could see that even in these humble surroundings, that this baby, this child, was a king. Not one who is born, who will one day be a king, but already a king. One who by his very nature is a king, one who will be king forever. And so literally they, they fall down. They, they, they couldn't stop themselves worshipping Jesus. And they give them the most precious gift they could of gold, of frankincense, of myrrh. Gold, the most precious metal that God chose to be used in the construction of the, uh, the Ark of the Tabernacle and the, the Temple. A gift fit for a king. Incense, a precious spice used in the Old Testament uh, ritual and sacrifice when God's holiness was acknowledged. And myrrh, the most unusual because it was a precious spice, but one usually used to embalm the body of the dead. Which makes it a very strange gift to give, but it was probably to symbolise that this king was born to die for his people. And in actual fact, it was going to be that death in our place that would make it possible for our sins to be forgiven and for us to worship him as God. Jesus came as king to all nations. And this is where it started with the Magi. Well, a couple of applications as we finish. We are good in our country, aren't we, at, at raising people up, at elevating them, at worshipping them. If you think of some of the people who have been elevated this year uh, to positions of worship, and there's a few appear on the screen. If you don't know, if you haven't been watching X Factor, that is Matt Cardle. Anybody know who that is? Yes, yeah, Jessica Ernest, the heptathlete, world champion. Kate Middleton, we mentioned before. And finally, making a bit of a return to, to fame, Ronnie Corbett, come back. The trouble with this culture that raises people up is that it makes everybody want to aspire to those positions, to be, to be worshipped by others. It encourages a culture of people worship. And it's not just in the public eye that this is going on. You'll know yourselves, I'm sure. You'll see it in your workplaces. There are those who are fighting to get to the top, to be admired by those below them, people who will sacrifice anything to succeed. And, of course, that affects us. And if we are so focused on what people think of us, it doesn't have to be because we have a high opinion of ourselves and a high opinion of our abilities. Often, if we have a low self-esteem, it's a sign that 
we are too worried about what people think of us. If we are wrapped up in that, that culture, we will miss the wonderful experience of worshipping God, of putting all of our focus on him. The major had all they wanted. They had wealth, they had position, they had intellect, and yet they knew that if the Son of God had been born, they needed to find him, they needed to worship him. Otherwise, their life would not be complete. So we can't just sit here this morning and dismiss this story of something of a legend that, that doesn't require any response from us because we are all faced with the same question. The same question that faced the Magi and Herod 2,000 years ago. Was this child that was born then really a divine king? Was he really God come down to earth? And if that is so, how are we going to respond to him? What is the most precious gift that we can bring today if we accept that Jesus is king? As that carol goes that we sang earlier on, yet what I can I give him, give my heart. In other words, we can give our whole lives. So to make it even more understandable, to give him something that you value most in your life, to put him before that, something you couldn't live without, that you would rather hang on to than let God have control over. That could be many things. Maybe it could be a position of status. Maybe you are happy to be a Christian as long as people think good of you, look up to you. Maybe it's some aspect of moral behaviour that is holding you back from God. Something you're not prepared to change in your life, even though you know that it's not pleasing to God. Maybe it's your clinging on to some control over your life. You don't want to give complete control to Jesus. You want your freedom. You want to be able to make your own decisions about how you lead your life. Jesus is not someone we need to reluctantly give control to. He's not just another human leader with all the human faults that every human leader has. No, Micah says, he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Jesus says himself, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And that is why we come to worship Jesus, not just here today, not just at Christmas, but every day of our lives. And that is why we bring the gift of our lives to Jesus, because he has already given us his most precious gift, his own life, without which we would have nothing to offer. Well, let me finish with a verse from Micah 5 before we sing our final hymn. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace.